This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Hello, and welcome to Lends Me Your Ears. This is a film podcast where we see something new in cinemas or on a streaming service and connect and compare it to older films by the same filmmaker or in the same genre. Sometimes we give love to the work of a lead actor. My name is Karsten Knox. I'm a film writer and a critic. My blog is called Flaw in the Iris, and it can be found at halifaxbloggers.ca. And my name's Stephen Cook, and I'm a multimedia journalist with the Chronicle Herald and the Saltwire Network. And on this episode of Lends Me Your Ears, we are looking at Broadway musicals adapted for the big screen. There have been at least three prominent ones in 2021. So we're going to talk about those and about the films that may have inspired them, uh, the shows, the the events. It's all about the, the stage and the screen today on Lends Me Your Ears. Well, tonight, tonight won't be just any night because we are talking about some new movie musicals and some related movie musicals, remakes, tangentially connected uh, pieces due to a composer uh, and uh, and a Broadway legend. It, we're, we're kind of all over the Great White Way today with uh, a look at some, some films that are uh, in theaters and on streaming services uh, that will put a song in your heart and uh, bounce in your step and... Uh, and take some money out of your uh, bank account. So, <laughs> yeah. Well, especially if you were to see them on stage, this is the yes, thing well. that <laughs> often keeps me away from from live musical theater. Or theater sometimes is just the the cost of tickets can be uh, can be bank breaking. Yes. Have you ever been to a Broadway show? Uh, I have been to a West End show, actually oh, many me. West End shows in London, but I've, I don't think I've ever actually been. I've been to New York many times, but never seen a show on Broadway. I saw Avenue Q on Broadway, and that was that was a lot of fun. Oddly enough, that's never been uh, done in any kind of video or uh, filmic sense. I imagine it'll happen at some point. It's a very popular musical. I even saw a production of it at, uh, at Neptune years ago. So I, I, I can't imagine uh, somebody hasn't at least proposed a film version of that human versus puppet uh, musical uh, adaptation. And uh, you know, I'm sure Hamilton is going to be waiting in the wings at some point. We're getting wicked at some point that, that we're closer to a film version of the uh, Wizard of Oz, the postmodern Wizard of Oz musical Wicked. Uh, they announced some of the lead casting for that recently. So mm. that's something to look forward to. Uh, but uh, we're starting with uh, a classic, a bona fide classic, uh, you know, created by a group of legends uh, of, uh, of Broadway and, uh, and music in general, and now rebrought to the screen uh, for the first time in uh, 60 years. It's West Side Story is back on the big screen, directed by making his debut as a musical director, uh, Steven Spielberg, which I know when they announced this, this seemed like a really odd choice. <laughs> well, it's an odd choice for a lot of reasons. I think people don't necessarily warm to the idea of a classic musical. I mean, you know, obviously there was the stage success, but the film itself, you know, won Oscars and is considered to be one of the great, you know, adaptations from 1961 uh, that uh, that there is. And, and you know, why why go through the effort of, of trying to best what Jerome Robbins and Robert Wise brought to the screen? Uh, you know, Stephen Sondheim doing lyrics, Leonard Bernstein doing... 
uh, uh, music. I mean, it, it is the songs are are iconic. It, it just there there. I think there have been a lot of questions as to why Spielberg would do this and and why in this time this point in his career. But holy smokes, has he done something special? I was blown away by West Side Story uh, twenty twenty one. Yeah, me too. And I get the feeling that it's just something that he's wanted to do for a long time. It's just a passion project that uh, you know. I'm sure he's probably been making this film over and over in his head for the past, you know, 40 odd years. And, uh, you know, the only thing that comes close is that there's a, a kind of the jitterbug contest that turns into a riot in uh, 1941. And of course, the opening number in uh, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. And as far as I can think, that's about as close as he's gotten to to realizing his dream of, of making a musical. And, uh, you know, why you would take a war horse that is is generally pretty well respected, although as we're going to see, because we did go back and rewatch uh, the original, uh, directed by Robbins and, and Wise, uh, you know, there's a lot to be improved on. Uh, even though it is a classic and it's it's very enjoyable, uh, you know, the Broadway musicals get revived all the time, and why not uh, redo it for the big screen? Oh, absolutely. And uh, yes, the 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 old chestnut. Well, that hasn't aged well. Has, did come up a few a few times when we watched the original, but let's talk about the new yes. one first. Um, you know, I, I, you know, I was I was excited to see it. Every time Spielberg makes a film, whatever it is, it's an event, and uh, obviously, you know, with the uh, with the older film fresh in my head, and of course all those songs, America Tonight, G Officer Krupke, somewhere. These are the songs that uh, I think are the best of the bunch. And I look forward to seeing how they would be translated in this new new version. Well, the first thing that really um, impressed me about, um, about the new film is that uh, he makes, Spielberg makes explicit the theme of 1950s urban renewal and slum clearing by showing how the whole neighborhood is being torn down to be replaced by the uh, the Lincoln Arts Center in uh, in New York City, in Manhattan. And uh, this is happening, of course, in many cities across North America, including where we are speaking from in Halifax, Nova Scotia, this sort of wildly optimistic but deeply flawed idea of pulling down old buildings and replacing them, sort of slum clearing, while... People thought this would improve the lives of those living in those neighborhoods. What it actually did was destroy and displace whole communities of people who couldn't afford to live in the newer, sometimes more cheaply made constructions. And uh, yeah, this was going on all over North America. And so the characters in this version of West Side Story very much witness to the destruction around them and recognize that they have nowhere to go. So the, the fight for the turf between the Jets, the white gang of toughs and the sharks, the Puerto Rican gang, uh, are both seeing that turf taken over. And what this movie also makes explicit is that the white men, the white uh, gang started it by defacing uh, a, a flag that was very important to the local Puerto Rican uh, community. Uh, Lieutenant Schrank, uh, played by Corey Stoll, explains, you know, explains this all early on. There's a, there's a there's quite a bit more dialogue in the setup here to, to make us understand what's really at stake. And, uh, and there's also a lot more violence in this new film that is uh, a lot more explicit, I think, than in, in the old one. Yeah, Tony Kushner's screenplay for this, you know, it's, it's certainly uh, a lot more uh, focused and, you know, delves deeper into the issues of the day than the original musical did. And that, that there are external forces that are going to make huge changes for both sides of the equation. And West Side Story, uh, you know, in the not too distant future, which is not something you necessarily get a, uh, a hint of uh, in the in the original. Of course, you have the, the cops, but they're they're not necessarily the 
force of oppression that they are here. And uh, I, th- I think uh, it's a very smartly updated screenplay uh, to adapt the the story of these warring communities into a and give it a more kind of modern uh, modern hindsight if you will and mm. and it's funny how gentrification is a theme running through a few of the things that we've watched for this show you know not the sort of first thing you think of when you think about about uh you know uplifting and and uh, life enriching musicals that, that of course the best ones have a message of some sort and west side story especially in this new version with its uh more socially conscious screenplay uh certainly it juggles a lot of issues and I thought does a lot of it pretty well. Absolutely, yeah. And another thing I really liked about it, how Spielberg and his director of photography, Janusz Kaminski, have aped the look of the era of the film. You know, the, the, it looks like a film that could have been made uh, back in the day uh, in its sort of palette and Life magazine-styled visuals while managing to find new ways of shooting everything in his angles, in the in the editing, and the way the camera moves. You know, I, I thought that Dune was going to get my personal award for the most beautiful and epic cinematic experience of 2021, but West Side Story might take it by a by a narrow lens. It's a gorgeous looking film. Yeah, and you know Spielberg is pulling all of his skills together here. His his ability to move a camera within spaces large and small, his uh his eye for editing uh and uh and just to just to get those kind of earthy yet still cinematic performances out of actors. Uh, you know that that uh you know he never lets you forget you're watching a movie. But uh, just everything is keyed at just kind of the right note. I mean, it's a musical. Things are supposed to be a little larger than life, uh, and uh, but it doesn't go into the realm of hokum. It's such a fine line to walk, and he seems to be able to do it for the most part. It, now, that approach doesn't always work with every moment or every number in the film, uh, but I, I found that most of the choices made here uh, – you know, work work uh, in the movie's favor. Yeah, yeah, and for sure, and and those that cast is is pretty extraordinary. Obviously, the the dancing is sort of unimpeachable, and the singing is terrific. Uh, I thought that America is e- that number was even more jubilant this time out tonight. Uh, performed on a fire escape is is really magical. Full marks to Rachel Ziegler as the new Maria in her first feature role. I know uh, she's cow. really something. Uh, it, uh, Ariana DeBose as Anita is also incredible. Uh, I really liked actor Mike Faced as the wiry sort of doomed riff. Uh, Ansel Elgort is he's fine. I think you know he's he's a fine singer and he has grace in his movements. Uh, he may not be quite the rafters high standard of his castmates, but uh, uh, also nice to see Rita Moreno return. Oh my gosh! Uh, in, a, in a new role as Valentina, basically replacing the doc as the owner of the drugstore. Um, yeah, and, and about those numbers, I mean, uh, I, I really, I thought, as I said, I thought most of the dance numbers were just wonderful. I did wonder about um, Spielberg's take on G. Officer Krupke, which was a one of my favorites from the first film, which we'll talk about in a moment. But uh, but it was a, it felt a little more stagey in this version, and uh, and he also reduces the role of the tomboy, maybe perhaps trans character, anybody's played here by. Iris Menace uh, from the original, which I thought was an opportunity to do more with that character. Uh, but uh, there's, you know, th- there's there's all the Latinx 
cast is so good and much of their dialogue is unsubtitled Spanish, which I think was a kind of gutsy choice to be more inclusive to audiences in that community who might be watching the film, uh, you know, and then also I won't spoil this, but the the choice of who gets to sing somewhere, I think, is, uh, is a choice that really, uh, it provides an even more melancholy swing at what I think is maybe the greatest song in the show. Yeah, I, I was going to spoil it. Now, now that you mention it, I'm not going to. It's, <laughs> it's such a beautiful moment and... Uh, yeah, I got a little emotional. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not gonna not gonna lie. I, I mean, this is music I've been hearing my whole life, uh, either in the context of the, the the show or you know just as performed, uh, you know, by other artists. Because a, a lot of these songs were really popular uh, beyond uh, beyond the show. Somewhere it was became kind of a pop standard for a lot of artists. Uh, I, I recommend you chasing down the PJ Proby version. I think I mentioned this to you that he was a pop singer, American uh, born, but uh, went to England and became kind of a sensation there for any number of reasons I'm not going to go into, but he had this multiple octave range and had a tendency to really over dramatize whatever he was singing. And his, his hyper dramatic version of somewhere is, has to be heard to be believed. But, um, you know, I, I found that the, the singing was, was it, it didn't, get overly uh broadway like i feel there's this sometimes a tendency for there's a certain style of singing that's kind of best kept on the stage and and here i think uh it was kind of a little more modulated i mean they're obviously we're dealing with uh great voices and and singing powerful songs but at the same time they're kind of modulated there's, there's a certain level of as much realism as you can have in a musical, I suppose. But uh, like, like, like you say, like America, for example, you know that number like in the in the original movie, it's on a rooftop soundstage set. Uh, here, they just take it right to the streets and it open the song up, and it's a lot more uh, kinetic and visually inventive and colorful and. You know the the movement goes right out into the street, and it's it's really wonderfully staged. Yeah, and, and uh, well, as I mentioned, G. Officer Krupke is brought onto a sound stage instead of on the streets. Yeah, so it's almost <laughs> they flip kind of those fun two. How they reverse it. Yeah, yeah, um, but yeah, I mean, I the one thing about the story, and this is I found very much to sort of segue to the uh, original film version um, that I still struggle with is that sort of central romance, the adaptation of of Romeo and Juliet, which I think is maybe a little more successfully done in the new film, partly because the performers, I think, are better cast. Uh, you know, I don't think... I don't think that the that the purists will be uh, offended though by the changes that uh, Spielberg and Kushner have made. Um, I think there's there's a lot of things about it that have been updated, but a lot of things that feel totally relevant. Um, but yeah, that that idea that that this is somehow adapting Shakespeare and uh, the tragedy of it and the sort of like you know yearning teen love that comes out of nowhere and and binds these these two communities together in these these two characters um that's the part that i i still struggle with a little bit yeah at, at least it's a little more believable here than it is in the in the uh in the original because it as as i learned in sort of looking up some of the history of of the original film that 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 richard Bamer and natalie wood who play the young lovers in the original 61 film uh, did not get along and i yeah. think and i think to a certain degree that lack of chemistry is on the screen uh to some degree uh but i wasn't sure if it's because they didn't get along or because maybe they're horribly miscast i'm not sure <laughs> which which uh, well, maybe some from column a some from column b you probably. know natalie wood obviously is not uh uh 
you know, she's 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 doing the accent. She she's not the the right uh, heritage for this this part. And that was something, of course, that happened all the time in 1960s in Hollywood going back. So so it wasn't no one raised an eyebrow then. But but of course, now it just seems really wrong headed. Um, but also, yeah, they don't just have a lot of of chemistry, these two. Uh, and when, you know, the lyrics like say it loud and there's music playing, say it soft. And it's almost like praying. It just made me roll my eyes a little bit. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, they just, it just doesn't quite work as well. But, you know, there's a lot of things that, that when you watch the original, you can understand why it's been so iconic. Uh, I didn't even realize that this is the, the production, this is the show where I Feel Pretty comes from. That was a song that <laughs> total, totally surprised me. Did you uh, first hear it on The Muppets? Probably, yeah. Cause, <laughs> probably that's where I Because I, I definitely, I knew the song before that because it was kind of, almost a kind of cliche sort of girly song if you will but but uh but the version on the muppet show kind of turns the whole theme of it on its head and and also the dr teeth and the electric mayhem uh also did a version of america on uh on uh, one of the uh one of the muppet shows like an instrumental version that uh where they kind of go into a free jazz mode Whoa. much to kermit's dismay and uh and uh, that's that, that was my probably my first exposure to that particular tune before I ever saw the movie uh, of West Side Story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, probably for me too. Uh, and of course, you know, seeing the original opening, it's the bravura with all these locations in New York, uh, a city that's changed a lot since 1961. Of course, the new version shot mostly in New Jersey in places like Patterson and uh, yeah, uh, these little towns that still, little okay. cities that still look like New York in the 60s, I guess. I saw, there was a reference to Patterson. There was like in in the basement at Docks, which is in the new version run by Valentina, there's a box on the wall of, uh, or on a shelf of something, some product for it to go on the shelves and on the it said Patterson, New Jersey on the side of the box. So I, I didn't even uh, realize that they had filmed in places like that. So that makes total sense. Yeah. Yeah. Patterson and Newark, I guess, is one of the, the, the main locations for, for the new film. But the old film has incredible, of course, incredible music. We've been talking about that. Uh, it's funny to, to think that these young uh, dancers, uh, the, the, the sharks and the, uh, the jets were at ever considered threatening in their neatly tucked in shirts and their pants and their daddy-o and all of that. Like it just seemed seems so hokey in so many ways um, but the the dialogue and the numbers of sing- the songs are so sharp um, and the longer I watched the movie the more the more I realized what was so great about it it was that whole combination the way that some y- y- truth of youth culture was being conveyed and that feeling that everything you want at, as a young person you have to fight for it um, of course it's a story about racism and xenophobia but there's something about it that makes you know, that's, that is trying to get to the truth of, of youth and the mistakes that you make as a youth, you know. Um, at one point, Doc says, you you make this world lousy. And the and Action Boy says, uh, we didn't make it, Doc, you know. <laughs> it's about generational schism yes. in, in a way that, that I really, really am, am, was impressed by. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it's kind of like uh, Rebel Without a Cause, the musical. And I... I I kind of wonder if that's part of the reason why Natalie Wood was cast because she was so good in Rebel Without a Cause. And and I, I don't want to denigrate Natalie Wood because I like her in a lot of things. She's great in another musical, Gypsy, uh, a couple of years later. Um, but uh, but somehow it just and, – and it's not just her. It's the way the character's written. It's like Maria's been locked up in a room <laughs> for the last – 
you know, 17 years or however long it's been. Um, and, as opposed to in, in the new one, she's a little more street smart and has, you know, is a little more aware of the world around her. Whereas in, in the original movie, it's like she's just, you know, she's just about to get on a train for the convent or something like that. And it just doesn't, uh, that doesn't feel terribly real either. But, um, but other than that, it, it, it still feels fairly modern in its approach. I mean, those opening, uh, shots of, of New York city, the, the overhead shots, which we see repeated in some other things, uh, that we watch for the show that, you know, those helicopter gliding shots of the streets as we zoom in on, on the, the barrio and, uh, which, which oddly enough, uh, the legend has it is that the streets where they shot West Side Story were torn down to make Lincoln Center in New York, uh, which of course is the opening of the Spielberg West Side Story is they show a sign saying the future home of Lincoln Center. Uh, and then we've, We've since discovered there's some debate about whether or not that's actually the case, but but uh, it's a great legend. They tell you that on the TCM bus tour of Manhattan, so uh, we'll, we'll we'll print the legend as it were. <laughs> but uh, but it it does have uh, that certain kind of immediacy and modern feel in in the in the, 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 the color and and uh, the rapid camera movements and and a lot of stuff that hadn't been seen in movie musicals up to that point. And uh, you know it's. Uh, it's it's no wonder Robert Wise was chosen to then do Sound of Music, but uh, you know I think West Side Story is a better movie for sure, and uh, and and it re- it really resonates uh, today. West Side Story is a better movie music uh, movie musical than Sound of Music. I you may you well, may get so we can maybe get some letters about that, Stephen. I don't know. <laughs> There's a certain amount of treacle. In the sound of music, I if given a preference, is I would rather watch West Side Story. It's certainly got more more grit in it, that's for sure. Although West, the sound of music does have Nazis, so it's got that going for it. All right, so on this episode of Lens Me Your Ears, we're talking movie musicals. Uh, I think we've talked about movie musicals before, Stephen. Uh, we have, but it's nice to have a whole crop of new ones. Yeah, well, especially when they're so good. And this next one we're going to talk about is excellent, and it's Tick, Tick, Boom, directed by Lin-Manuel Miranda, of course, uh, a sort of a one-person uh, musical revolutionary, uh, and uh, this is based on the musical by Jonathan Larson. Now, uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda, this is the first film feature film that he's directed, which I think, and, and to explain why he chose it, it makes a lot of sense. Uh, Jonathan Larson was best known for the being the creator of Rent, the Pulitzer Prize, and Tony Award-winning 90s rock musical. Now, tragically, he died suddenly in 1996, just as Rent was premiering off-Broadway. Before Rent, he created Tick, Tick, Boom, which is a semi-autobiographical musical about how he and his friends struggled in the early 1990s trying to make a name for themselves in the world of musical theater. He workshopped and performed it before he turned his attention to Rent, and after Larson's death, the play was revived. It ended up inspiring Lin-Manuel Miranda, creator, of course, of Hamilton and In the Heights, which we will talk about shortly. Um, It makes all kinds of sense that Miranda would choose this material to be his debut as feature film director. And it's all very meta. It's a musical about a writer struggling to write a musical directed by someone who felt inspired by the original creator. Uh, it, you know, and um, it is it is quite, quite entertaining and quite moving. And I thought the music was terrific. I mean, this is what you want from a musical, right? You want the you want the energy and the excitement and the bigger than life elements. And you want songs that you are humming on your way out of the cinema or, you know, when you switch off the uh, the movie on your your uh, on your when you're watching it at home. Um, 
Now, interestingly, Tick, Tick, Boom isn't actually specifically about the musical Larson's trying to make, though I was curious about his dystopic tale set in a strange future. <laughs> yeah, we don't learn much about it, do we? <laughs> no, not really. Um, it's actually about the passion and the sacrifices required to be an artist. Now, uh, John, played by Andrew Garfield, lives in a crappy New York apartment while he works as a waiter at a greasy spoon diner and spends his every extra moment writing music and lyrics. His girlfriend, Susan, played by Alexandra Ship, is a dancer. She wants to make it uh, take a job outside the city that will give her more options, but she wants John's input on this big decision, and he keeps avoiding that talk. Now, John's best friend is Michael, played by Robin DeJesus, who moved to New York with him to work in theater, and he's taken a job in advertising, and it gives him security and even luxury, but he's turned his back on that dream that he and John shared, the one that drove them to the big city in the first place. John sees the appeal in this compromise, especially when his confidence in his work is failing. All this is told against the backdrop of the AIDS crisis in New York City. Now, John is about to turn 30, and he's been working on this big musical for years and hasn't gotten anywhere, and he needs to write a key song for the show before it's presented. Um, and uh, and that's the the of course the title. It's like time is ticking. Like there's this this constant sense of the stakes that are involved here because he really wants to have something happen before he turns thirty. Uh, and and what Lin Manuel Miranda does so deftly is jump between the musical scenes in John's actual life. And then he, with his collaborators, including Vanessa Hudgens, presenting Tick, Tick, Boom in a workshop state on uh, on a stage in front of an audience. So this, this conceit between like real life and on stage is actually quite cleverly done. You know, you can you can if you need to get explicit with what the performance is, you can go to that. But then we have performers performing in, in scenes around John John's life. Uh, yeah. I mean, Stephen, what did you what did you make of all of this? Yeah, it's it's when you talk about how it's presented, it sounds convoluted but it really does work yeah the, the makes fact sense. that you know you're you're seeing kind of you're moving between the the dramatic version of a workshop presentation of a play about a musical being presented in a workshop presentation anyway the, the, it it all it does come together really well <laughs> it's, it's 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 better it works better uh, in the uh in the creation rather than the description, I, I guess. <laughs> yes, um, maybe I didn't do a great job in this. No, 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 no. <laughs> you, you, you described it pretty much exactly, but it, unless you unless you watch it, it's it's uh, it's it's multi layered in a way. It's it's like when you try to describe the flashback structure of Citizen Kane, it's, and you you kind <laughs> right. of you know you can kind of trip over the the various threads, but but it does it does hold together rather well, and and the. Uh, you know the the production numbers. There's one major production number, kind of in the middle of the musical, uh, called Sunday. That is sort of the big number that kind of lifts you up and out of the story. And a lot of the songs are presented either, you know, as state being staged in the tick tick boom version, or you know, in in the workshop or whatever. Uh, and then, but then when they pull out all the stops for Sunday, it really works. It doesn't doesn't stick out like a sore thumb at all it builds up nicely to it as the diner kind of comes apart and you realize that it's filled with legends of the stage you know there's joel gray trying to get his check and there's bernadette peters for the blink of an eye and baby newworth and you know they they obviously um you know had a great love for this idea and obviously for lin-manuel miranda so that <laughs> they would turn up for these these cameos just for one musical number is pretty astonishing and yeah uh, it's it's a you know it's great it's it's going to be the the moment that everyone's going to remember but but uh i, I think uh, andrew garfield is terrific here he's he's an actor i've been kind of hot and cold on over the years but 
uh, here he's uh, his ability to kind of channel neuroses into something compelling really works in his favor because uh, Jonathan Larson, at least as portrayed here, he's kind of a mess. You know, he's uh, and and I presumably that that was in the original show that he was very open about his own shortcomings as just as a person. And and uh, the film doesn't back away from that. He's very self-absorbed uh, and self-involved. And, and, you know, he tells himself it's in in the pursuit of art and creation and that's that's the important thing but you know often at the expense of uh his connection to the people around him and and i think that's what makes this very human and very believable and garfield uh you know doesn't have to tiptoe around that stuff he can prove what an a-hole <laughs> larson could be at times and, and uh and i think that just made me like it even more yeah i think you're absolutely right uh and you know a major nod of the critical hat to garfield who is a self-admitted non-singing actor he lifted his game and he, he trained i gather for months and months to make sure that he had the chops technically at the very least to be able to sing in this part and achieve something genuinely moving and his vocal performance i thought was really good um and i was so impressed with how Miranda managed tone in Tick, Tick, Boom. There's plenty of serious moments, even tearful ones, but the film itself and the story is largely about the joy of inspiration, the joy of having the opportunity to share your vision with the world, and plainly the joy of theater, even while acknowledging all the real-life pain that goes along with making it happen. Um, and uh, yeah, and, and you mentioned Sunday. I mean, that that was really great. And I'm not even like a dyed-in-the-wool theater fan. It's taken me a little while to sort of you know, really appreciate what these musicals are uh, are about, and uh, and watching that, I was like, oh, I know these people. <laughs> I've seen them a lot. Um, you know, even the actors from Hamilton, uh, Renee Elise Goldsberry and Philippa Sue are there. We also get Tarek Trotter, aka The Roots, Black Thought, rapping, who is amazing in one scene, and then oh, um, that's a great scene, especially yeah. with the satiric Broadway posters uh, in the background. If when you get to that scene, the the hip hop tune. Uh, you know, you might want to hit, you might want to just watch it through and then go back and watch it again and then hit pause on some of the posters because they're pretty funny. Yeah. Um, and Bradley Whitford, who shows up as and convincing as the late, great Stephen Sondheim, who is uh, is someone who, uh, watching, you know, some of these for this episode, but certainly starting to get a grasp now myself, personally, as I'm coming to this quite late, uh, the musical theater and his work, uh, what he was able to accomplish in his life. Yeah, the fact that... that uh you know, that Sondheim would attend his workshop and give him advice over the phone. In fact, there's a voice message sort of towards the end of the film, and it's the real Sondheim. It's not Bradley Whitford being Sondheim. He actually got uh, Sondheim to, to contribute a, a vocal appearance, if you will, a vocal cameo, and it's amazing. And and, and uh, the fact that, you know, he was that supportive of a young composer who's, you know, still kind of a jewel in the rough at this point uh, is, is says a lot for why he was so revered in the Broadway community and why he's going to be so missed uh, after his death recently. Yeah, for sure. Uh, now we should probably segue into uh, the next number. <laughs> uh, and that Moving is, right along. that is another project that Lin-Manuel Miranda is involved with. And that is the adaptation of his musical stage play in the Heights. It's directed by John M. Chu 
and uh, it is available, I guess, now on Crave or on demand. Um, and uh, yeah, the uh, incidentally, Tick Tick Boom is on Netflix for those of you looking to to watch that. Uh, but uh, In the Heights is Lin Manuel Miranda's earlier, somewhat less famous musical uh, than Hamilton, and it's a huge production. It's full of life and color whole bunch of terrific tunes um, and you know obviously much of its iconography and storytelling may be familiar from other musicals it owes a spiritual debt to West Side Story for sure but the energy and the enthusiasm and creativity on the screen is is startling um, I feel like it's got a shot hopefully even though it, it came out earlier this year at a, as a best picture nominee um, and it's about Uznavi de la Vega played by Anthony Ramos who owns a bodega on a corner in Washington Heights in the Bronx, the largely Latinx uh, neighborhood, uh, people of Cuban, Dominican, and Puerto Rican heritage making their way in America that does not offer many opportunities despite the myth, and that's especially true if you're an undocumented immigrant. Yep, uh, this is definitely a musical with political intent. It's worn brightly on its sleeve, but it's way too much fun to be didactic or too seriously. Now, uh, Uznavi has a Suenito, a little dream to go back to the Dominican and reopen the bar that his father used to run. Um, now, just home from Stanford is Nina, played by Leslie Grace, who carries the community's expectations of her being the genius, the one who made it out. Except now she's dropped out of school and her father, Kevin Rosario, played by Jimmy Smits, he sold half his limo business to pay for her to go the first time is planning on unloading the rest to send her back to school, and she's not happy about that. We also have Benny, played by Corey Hawkins, who works as a dispatcher at the business, and he has for years, and he's heartbroken that his job is going, but then he's in love with Nina, so he has that. And finally, Vanessa, played by Melissa Barrera, is a fashion designer inspired by her community who wants to move downtown and attend, attend New York University but can't afford it. Uznavi has been crushing on her for ages, mustering the courage to ask her out with the possible help of his cousin Sonny, played by Gregory Diaz IV. Uh, these are big voice dancers, uh, and it has this whole massive ensemble makes for some terrific numbers. And uh, yeah, and then there's a discovery that someone bought a winning lottery ticket at Uznavi's store and the neighborhood comes alive with the possibility of a windfall for one lucky local. It's all about the community. And uh, it's it's a pretty lovely, wonderful, magical kind of film. Yeah, and what a community. I mean, Lin-Manuel Miranda is... Uh certainly knows how to tell a story and and more importantly he, he knows that if you focus on the characters everything else will kind of fall into place and i think that's why this works so well is that there is so much focus on character we really get to know these people uh through through even just the little bits of dialogue and and uh, even the, the minor characters are, are given a lot of life and uh, and and respect uh, along the way and i feel that that's that everything else falls into place you know i was i was, I was thinking as i was watching it you know that it's it's visually you know very inventive and 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 lively and and i was thinking well there isn't a whole lot of dancing you know i thought there'd be more dancing but the, and then of course you know we get there we get to lots of moments with lots of vibrant movement and and uh and and music uh you know really coming to life on the screen i'm kicking myself for not seeing this in the theater i don't know why i held off and then uh had to had to watch it on streaming it was a, a bad move on my part but uh at least I, I did get to see it and i i enjoyed it quite a bit but uh you know when we do get to the dancing movement we're fully in this world and and 
fully accept that people are going to break out into dance. I, I, that's always the, the thing. But people who don't generally like musicals, they have a hard time when someone just suddenly opens up their mouth to sing or, or you know, burst into a dance number or whatever. And uh, I like the fact that this, you know, people are singing right off the bat. But to 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 go full blown musical, you know, we're fully immersed in this world before it uh, before it gets there. Oh yeah, for sure. And and uh, and you know, the director John M. Chu, he directed a uh, crazy rich Asians, he had, he brings a certain cinematic flourish to the work. Uh, moments of, like, 2D animation, there's magic realist hallucinations, a swim dancing number in a community pool that oh, is that, amazing. Yeah, that's probably the, the, that's the sequence I'm going to remember, you know, long afterwards, the, the, the swimming pool sequence. And it, it keeps going. It, it's so, you know, you get everything you want out of that sequence. It doesn't end too soon. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, and it's a great way to bring all the characters together uh, in, in a kind of a new setting and... and uh, and in a fun setting that, that, you know, just sticks in your brain for long after. Yeah. Um, and there's this gorgeous moment of physics defying tango up the side of a tenement block. Uh, the enthusiasm is so undeniable. Uh, and Miranda actually himself does appear as the Piragua guy, the ice cream cone dude at war with Mr. Softy, which I really <laughs> enjoyed. Um, and Mr. Softy is played by, uh, I, I'm forgetting the actor's name, but he was, I guess, I think he was Washington in the original stage version of Hamilton. So oh, okay. it's a nice little nod there to the connection to Hamilton. Yeah. I mean, it isn't a perfect film. I thought there were times when the plotting was a little too straightforward. It cleaves a little bit towards cliche. Um, and, you know, it feels silly to complain about this, but are there any musicals that are less than two hours long? Like, <laughs> it just, they're so, they're so long. Of yeah, all the, these Busby, movies, the Busby Berkeley musicals. <laughs> they're all really long. And even all these movies we've been watching are pretty long, too. Um, um, but you know, for the most part, the 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 movie, this movie is so good that it doesn't matter. Uh, but there are times when I was like, "Geez, this is going. It's taking a while um, to tell its story." I will also want to also want to mention that um, there this sort of small but quite satisfying note. As someone who wasn't a fan of Joker. Uh, this film is shot in Washington Heights, where Joker was also shot, and uh, the film, uh, yes, in the Heights. Um, rescues a highly recognizable set of Bronx stairs, which were used <laughs> in the Joker to, to some, I mean, you know, some will say iconic just by virtue of the fact that it was such a popular film, but uh, I was not a fan of that. And I'm glad to see these stairs used in, in this movie uh, rescued from that one. Now I just want to see a musical version of the exorcist. Uh, it's going to happen someday. You know, I would see, I would see a musical. I would go back and see a musical ver- version of Joker too. Like if they, if they wanted to do that, I would, would be up for that that would uh that would make me happy send in the clown hi i'm Lindsay cameron wilson host of the food podcast but you know what it's not just about food it's about people and their stories shared through the lens of food the food podcast has been described as an audible fairy tale how about that you can find us on iTunes and Stitcher. So come join us. We would love to share our stories with you. And welcome back to the third and final segment of Lens Me Your Ears. And today we're taking a look at some movie musicals that are connected in one way or another. This is a kind of a thread running through all of these, uh, inspired by 
the recent uh, big screen return of West Side Story as directed by Steven Spielberg in a new uh, adaptation that we're quite fond of. Uh, and Tick, Tick, Boom, uh, directed by Lin-Manuel Miranda, which is uh, now available on Netflix uh, about the life of Jonathan Larson, the uh, gone-too-soon Broadway composer and writer who's... Um, Magnum Opus, if you will, was the musical Rent, which had its uh, premiere off-Broadway on uh, the same day that he died. He passed away uh, from, uh, I can't remember if it was like a congenital heart defect or something like that. It was was, um, some condition that he'd been diagnosed with and uh, he succumbed to uh, just the the same day that I think a workshop version of Rent was... uh, was about to take place. So uh, there's a real poignancy about the musical because it is about, uh, about losing friends and life and death. And, and uh, it it was a very, uh, I'm sure for the people involved, a very odd way to, and a very, uh, very sad way to, to uh, start this uh, roller coaster of a musical, which became one of the biggest hits of, uh, of its day and uh, of Broadway history. I think it's the 11th longest running musical in Broadway history. And, uh, you know, very much steeped in urban Manhattan life. Uh, you know, it's an adaptation of La Boheme, the uh, the great opera by Puccini, and which has been told, I guess, in, in numerous different ways. I've seen a silent movie version with, I think, uh, Dorothy Gish, I think, or Lillian Gish. Uh, so it's a story that's been told a lot and uh, is is constantly being updated. In this case, this is the most recent version. And in this case, we have uh, Anthony Rapp, who's kind of our surrogate uh, eyes and ears in this world up. Uh, playing Mark Cohen, who's a, a young filmmaker, a documentarian, who's always carrying his 16-millimeter clockwork camera around to capture footage of whatever he sees going on around him. And and uh, his interaction with his friends, um, including a, a trans woman, Angel, played by Wilson, uh, Germaine Heredia, uh, Mimi Marquez, uh, Rosario Dawson, uh, playing a, a dancer who's also got a drug problem that uh, she uh, fights throughout the film. Uh, Roger Davis, uh, or Adam Pascal, plays Roger Davis, his, his roommate, who's also a failed musician who just can't seem to finish uh, a song and is a, kind of a, the butt of jokes as a result of that. And... Um, and also, Idina uh, Menzel, who has, has gone on to greater fame since this film, uh, plays Maureen Johnson, who, who's uh, Mark's ex-girlfriend, uh, who's kind of a rocker-slash-performance artist, I guess, who, who's uh, now in uh, a relationship with Joanne Jefferson, played by Tracy Toms, and uh, I guess in a little bit uh, of a note ripped from Larson's own life, where uh, a girlfriend left him to partner with a, a woman, and I guess he borrowed that for uh, for rent. And in fact, they, the rent, uh, Tick Tick Boom makes fun of his tendency to take uh, his friends' lives and turn them into his own uh, art in uh, on more than one occasion. And of course, uh, this film is set in the heart of um, in the late '80s, uh, in the midst of the AIDS crisis, which is very deeply felt throughout the film, but also the gentrification of uh, of. of New York neighborhoods like the Lower East Side and Hell's Kitchen and so on. That also plays a part as uh, as the title implies. These artists are just trying to create and live their lives and they're being pushed out by people like 
Mark's former roommate, Benjamin, played by Tay Diggs, who uh, I guess married well and now owns the building they used to live in and is uh, raising the rent and uh, trying to kick them out for, for some new development project, although he changes his mind about it a few times over the course of the film. Uh, it's, it's certainly not a perfect film. Uh, I, I get the impression that this might have been a, a better thing to see on stage, and I, I, I wonder if, if uh, how possible it would be to make a, a great film out of rent, uh, certainly a, a much-loved stage production. I don't know how much of that lies at the feet of Christopher Columbus, uh, or Chris Columbus, rather, the director who, you know, best known for things like uh, writing Gremlins, uh, Adventures in Babysitting, the, the couple of Harry Potter movies. Uh, he, he's a, a guy who certainly pushes emotional buttons in a lot of ways, but often uh, uh, not a, the most subtle of directors. And I think uh, ultimately that's what brings Rent down a couple of notches. Yeah, he's not a director who has much style. He's just, he's a journeyman, you know, Hollywood. Uh, I, won't, I, won't go, I won't go so far to, to de- denigrate uh, some, some aspects of his work, but he's never been a favorite of mine, and I don't think cineasts tend to like what he does. And I'm afraid that this time, I had never seen Rent on the stage, so this was my first experience of it, and I can't say that I was too impressed. I was like, how is, how is this material, how did this become such a sensation? Because the movie is long, it doesn't seem to really go anywhere, it doesn't have any, any the stakes. I mean, okay, so, so a couple of the characters characters have addictions or they're dealing with illness uh, in the case of, of one character having AIDS and whether or not they're going to live out the year. There are those kinds of things in the background. But overall, it's just a series of episodes. Uh, and I kept waiting to be uh, impressed by the music, uh, at least. I thought, well, the music and dancing, even if the story is not s- grabbing me. Uh, and it took a while. Eventually, I did actually start to enjoy them. I, I felt like some of the more rock-sounding numbers feel like cheesy rewrites of the 80s hair metal numbers, you know, which weren't <laughs> yeah, that dangerous that. to start with. But when you apply them in the musical theater style, they just feel really hokey. Um, the one, the first one I really ended up enjoying was the Tango Maureen, which is about, you know, you mentioned the Edina Menzel character and being kind of this love triangle so that's what that's about uh and i like the one song on the subway car about the dream to open up a restaurant in santa fe and uh and then that la vie bohème which is kind of the centerpiece which brings home that puccini reference uh that is a real joy with all the characters in this uh this this restaurant which reminded me um of uh, sneaky d's in toronto this like sort <laughs> ah, of greasy okay. kind of like you know uh restaurant uh but uh that they all love and they talk about their lifestyle and how much they enjoy it I, that one had a lot of charm and a lot of humor um, and take me or leave me. That one's also a, a lot of fun. But uh, but yeah, it's um, there. Are, there are things about this that made me go hmm. Like this enormous third floor apartment that is a frequent setting. I just was like, is this the musical of Friends? Like, <laughs> well, <it's, laughs> it, uh, the movies can never get apartments right. So yeah. I guess you kind of have to take that in stride. <laughs> I'm guessing, you know, it's got to be big enough for people to dance around. <laughs> I guess. I guess. I mean, I kept thinking if they lived in somewhere maybe a little less extravagant, maybe they'd have less trouble paying their rent. Uh, but, um, but yeah, it, it, I don't know if I'd recommend the film, even though it is great to hear some of the songs and the cast. The cast is really good. Anthony Rapp now I know better from having seen him in Star Trek Discovery. He's a regular on that, that show. Um, but I think that many of them, you know, they – Originated. Many of them originated the theatrical roles. 
10 years before when Rent was on stage in New York. Now they're 10 years older. They're too old for these parts. Like they should be in their early to mid 20s and they are in their early to mid 30s. And that's another problem because I just don't quite buy them as these desperate. It just doesn't quite work the same way as a result. So anyway, all of which to say is is uh, it's a pro it's not it's not a great film. Um, but I still, it does now make me want to see the original stage show if it's ever showing anyway. I don't know if it's still showing on Broadway, but I would, I might go and see it next oh, time it, I get a it'll chance. It'll probably come back at some time. <laughs> yeah, I, I definitely like it in bits and pieces. Like, for example, like Mark Cohen, who's the central character, uh, seems to have a lot of the self absorption <laughs> that, uh, that Andrew Garfield's version of Jonathan Larson has a tick, tick, boom. And, uh, you know, as, as a documentary filmmaker, uh, that whole portrayal is a complete mess because he's got like a He's, he's shooting silent footage on film. They, you know, they had video camcorders when this was made. Um, you know, I, I don't think many documentarians were just shooting from the hip with a clockwork uh, camera at this point and not shooting audio. So, yeah, seriously. you know, that footage would be useless. Uh, mm. And yet, you know, it, it does it does play. It, all it's good for is the flashback kind of regathering that happens later in the film when they're you know after uh i guess after angel's funeral uh, spoiler alert uh that, <laughs> that uh, um you know they all come together and watch the, the footage and all that but other than that it's like why were you lugging that camera around all that time uh-huh. you weren't gonna be able to use any of that footage and, and then he whines about getting hired to be on a local news program and selling out but he wasn't exactly doing much else to begin with and you know so you know if you, a job like that in Living in Manhattan is, is kind of a, a dream, I guess. But yeah. I guess uh, I guess he saw it as a, you know as a, a violation of his own principles. Even though he does take the job, but uh, you know, but he's not happy about it. Yeah, yeah. So now, but as we wrap up our lens me your ears uh, episode on musicals and uh, musicals brought to the big screen. Let's uh, let's devote the end of this to uh, Stephen Sondheim. Yes. And uh, now you suggested we watch a documentary that's on the Criterion channel called Original Cast Album Company, which is about an hour long. It's from D.A. Pennebaker, shot in, the, in 1970. And it is actually that title. That's what it is. The recording of the original cast album for Stephen Sondheim's company musical show. Whole thing is shot in studio where we see actors tackling material that sounds... Well, as difficult to perform as any music that I've oh. ever heard, I could not believe it, the breath control and the enunciation and the professionalism of these performers. It is astonishing how difficult this seems. Yes. Uh, and that's just from a layperson. I just couldn't believe it. Um, and I, my my only connection with this material was because it, in Marriage Story, Adam Driver sings a song from the show. And I think maybe Scarlett Johansson does yeah, as well. Yeah, two songs from this show up in A Marriage Story. Yeah. And uh, it's it's a remarkable document. You you see Sondheim at work in the recording studio, uh, you know, capturing these performances for you know for posterity, as was the tradition with Broadway going back, uh, you know certainly uh, to the dawn of the long playing record in the late forties, but even before that on uh, seventy eight uh, discs and L, you know what albums as it were of al- albums collecting seventy eights together, uh, and you know it's it's. It's even more demanding than the stage version because this is this is the version that people are going to be playing at home and living with for the you know the foreseeable future, and you want to get it right. Um, and uh, you know, these these are top performers. Uh, I mean, you see Elaine Strick uh, struggling with a number that she made iconic, "Ladies Who Lunch." That that was her tune. That was the song that she made famous, and she's 
not able to get it the way she wants it or the way that uh, Sondheim wants it and has to come back for a second session uh, sort of at the coda of the film where she nails it. And it's, it's, uh, it's amazing to see a legend like her, you know, uh, struggling in the creative process. D.A. Panabaker, Baker, of course, probably best known for uh, don't look back the the Bob Dylan documentary, but he's he just is as adept here in the studio. And this is Columbia Studios. This is where Dylan recorded a lot of his great records. Simon and Garfunkel recorded here. I think Miles Davis probably made many of his great uh, Columbia records in the same room. So it's amazing just to see that space and what's happening in it. But but it is a, a pretty remarkable uh, document that I, I recommend checking out on Criterion. I'm glad you did. Uh, Elaine Stritch, she's so dramatic. It's really <laughs> something to see. But you know what? Even watch, I mean, I, I get why they, they brought her back that second time because she her voice was tired. They kept saying, oh, your voice is tired. You're not quite getting well, it. It was like an all-night session, so no yeah, wonder. no wonder. And then when she comes back, though, it's the whole, the whole other thing. Thing. Like yeah. you can just feel the energy come up, and that's what really it's about. It's like capturing that energy again. One of the the performers says on stage, it actually is a little easier because you're dancing at the same time, so your your whole physicality is involved. Whereas sitting standing in front of the microphone, you can't. It's harder to grasp that, I guess. Uh, and just to wrap up, uh, we went back and watched uh, an adaptation of a, a really truly great Stephen Sondheim musical and probably the first Sondheim musical I ever watched on the PBS presentation of the live production with uh, George Hearn and uh, Angela Lansbury. That's Sweeney Todd, The Demon Barber of Fleet Street, uh, which got turned into a movie after years of speculation about whether or not a movie would ever be made. Tim Burton directing Johnny Depp as Sweeney Todd and Helena Bonham Carter as Mrs. Lovett, the maker of the worst pies in London. And <laughs> it's it's rated R. It's restricted because there's so much violence in it. Uh, but it's it's an amazing musical. And, and somehow it seems like the perfect comedy combination of director and cast and Sondheim reportedly said it was his favorite screen adaptation of one of his works. So, uh, cause it didn't shy away from the dark aspects of uh, what he was getting at in his musical. And, and I, I think it works really well. It comes right at the point where we are just starting to not like Johnny Depp anymore, I guess. Yeah, it is a remarkable film. I think we've talked about it briefly when we talked. We have an episode devoted to Tim Burton. Yes. And it is, I think, both of ours very close to our favorites of Tim Burton's work. And that's because he just goes for it, you know, hammer and tong to bring that kind of gothic energy. And it's very dark. It's funny in places, too. And, uh, I mean, my favorite moment in it maybe is Mrs. Lovett talking about uh, her dream of going to the seaside with her you know, oh, yeah. serial killer uh, boyfriend, her love. I mean, he's not returning her love, but he, she wants to, and they have, she has this vision of him in his, in his striped swimsuit. <laughs> it's just, <laughs> it's so funny. Uh, it's so dark and ghoulish and bleak, but also wonderful. And uh, yeah, it was great seeing this again. It was, uh, yeah, there's, there's so many great moments. And I, I hadn't watched this in a long, long time. I'd forgotten that Alan Rickman plays the judge. And, uh, you know, there's the, you know, there's a finite amount of Alan Rickman performances and he really he underplays it so beautifully. Like, you know, it's a role where you could really go to town with his lascivious kind of, uh, leering nature. And he plays it at this different note that, uh, makes it even more sinister. And it's, that's why Alan Rickman was such a great actor because he just 
knew where to go with this material. And, uh, and of course, Asha Baron Cohen as uh, Pirelli, the, the, the preening uh, peacock of a, of a rival barber, it, it, you know, it, he's not in it for long, but he certainly makes the most of uh, what, what he's got. Yeah, he's, he's a faux Italian. Uh, and then uh, Timothy Spall as well, of course, great British character actor who uh, was recently in Spencer. Uh, he's really good here as well as plays sort of the cat spa to the judge. And uh, he's the one who goes a little bigger, <laughs> certainly. But, you know, this is the material that calls for, for bigger is okay in this in this version, in this world that Tim Burton has has has, has uh, used, you know, this great material uh, to uh, to bring to the screen. And and uh, and yes, and be prepared for the blood, because when the blood comes, it is it's painted on. That wraps up this week's Lends Me Your Ears, a look at some new and uh, tangentially connected musicals uh, on uh, on the big and small screen that will, uh, will certainly take you out of reality for a little while, as, as musicals are wont to do. I hope you enjoyed the show and will enjoy some of these uh, films that are uh, in theaters and on screen right now. My name is Stephen Cook, and uh, you can find me on Twitter at NS underscore S-C-O-O-K-E. Uh, my name is Karsten Knox. I'm on Twitter under the name of my uh, film blog, Flaw in the Iris. And of course, Lends Me Your Ears has a Twitter account as well. And a Facebook page, which you can go and see posts about the show and also leave comments if you so desire. Thank you, as always, to CKDU for the use of the production facilities and for airing us every other Tuesday at 5 p.m. Atlantic time. And to the Village Soundcast Network, who uh, put the grace notes on our work and make it sound so pretty. Thanks very much. And We'll see you next time. Stephen, somewhere there's a place for us. Lends Me Your Ears is hosted by Stephen Cook and Karsten Knox and is produced in Halifax, Nova Scotia at Village Sound for the Village Soundcast Network. All music courtesy of Gypsophilia. Send feedback to Lends Me Your Ears podcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. This was a Village Soundcast Network original production.